Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. I um, am thankful for the opportunity to speak at chapel at Southeastern Seminary. I consider it a privilege and a great honor, and I've never taken it lightly. And so I am uh, thankful for this opportunity. It's been good to worship with you. Thank you, Daniel, for leading us. And uh, thank you, Jamie, and uh, thank you, Steve. Uh, as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look again at the, some of the verses and more that Daniel read to us just a minute ago. You and I have the privilege of living this side of Calvary by almost 2,000 years. And so we read these verses, and for many of us, this will be uh, one time of many hundreds of times uh, that we have read these texts. It's a wonderful thing to be on this side of Calvary. Let me just say that very quickly, but there is, there is a danger to that. There is a downside, and that is that we are able to take what it says for granted because we're used to it. And as a result, uh, the shock value, the scandal of what the text actually says uh, may be lost on us. So as we read what Paul says, Paul has been presenting in the book of Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 the great narrative of God's great plan of salvation. And he's telling us how it's all summed up in Jesus Christ and, in, and what the Lord is doing today uh, through the church to advance his kingdom. And we have this great flow, this great narrative, this great picture in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And because, like I said, we are this side of the finished work of not only Calvary and the work of the cross and the completed New Testament canon, when we read what he says, we say, well, yeah, that just, that just seems like uh, just a no-brainer. Uh, that's a logical outcome of what Christ has done. Not, that is not the way the original reader or the original hearer would have received what Paul had to say. The text would have slapped him in the face. It would have been amazing what Paul was saying. Shocking indeed. And so in order for us to hopefully appreciate what Paul is saying here a little better, I would like for you to think just for a moment at the level of, of hostility and animosity that Islamic extremists and jihadists have towards the West in general and uh, the United States in particular. And I want you to take that, 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 uh, those kinds of feelings and attitudes and transplant them now to the first century. And the way, the analogy isn't perfect. There's some places where the analogy doesn't, doesn't transplant easily. But in order to get an idea and to grasp just how shocking these verses really are, transplant the, 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 the feelings of the jihadist towards the West and, and, and transplant that to the extreme parts of, of Israel and, of, and, and of, of the Jewish people at this time that they have towards uh, Hellenistic culture in general and the Roman Empire in particular. Uh, you really can't get what the narrative of the book of Acts is 
without that backdrop of immense and intense hostility that the Jews had for the Romans. And to be honest with you, the Romans considered the Jews to be a blight. Uh, in fact, within five years of Paul writing these words, rebellion will break out in Judea. And it will result in the siege of Jerusalem with the city being burned and the temple being destroyed and literally a million people dying under horrific conditions. And so keep those thoughts in mind as Paul talks about how the gospel has overcome the hostility between Jew and Gentile as you read these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, would you please stand as I read it from the ESV. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, and hear the Apostle Paul say, Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross and thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, this is a Baptist sermon, so it'll have three simple points. And uh, uh, so let me just give the first point that Paul makes, and that is Paul presents the prior state of the Gentiles. Now, I don't know how many Jewish Christians we have in this room. I suspect not many. I, I suspect, like most congregations uh, in America, that the majority of Christians in it are, are of a Gentile background. And so I am, going, I, am, I am Gentile through and through, so I'm going to preach this sermon uh, like a Gentile. And so I'm going to speak of these things uh, in the first person. Uh, and so notice how he says about me, about us, uh, that prior we were enemies and aliens. Notice the hostility that he presents. He says in verse 11 that prior, 
He said, those who were circumcision called us, and notice in quotation marks of certain translations, the uncircumcision. Uh, that's not a term of endearment. Uh, that's a slur. Uh, that's a dig. That, that is, uh, uh, that's an offensive uh, 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 slang. In other words, the way, he, the way they said that uh, was derogatory. They, they did not think highly of us. We were the uncircumcised. And in fact, if you'll notice, look at verse, the last part of verse 14. What does he describe the relationship between Jew and Gentile prior to Christ? Look at the last part of verse 14. How it says, in his flesh he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Look at the last part of verse 16. He says it again. That is, in one body through the cross, thereby he has killing the hostility. And it's very difficult for you and me to, to really get what's going on here in this text. Or for that matter, the entire book of Acts will not make sense unless you really understand just the level of animosity and loathing that was going on at this time. You say, how much? I'll tell you how much. For 10 years after Jesus died on the cross, was buried, rose again from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, for 10 years after that, the gospel was not presented to any Gentiles. I mean, on the day of Pentecost, we're thrilled that 16 different people groups uh, uh, people from 16 different people groups were saved, but they were Jews from 16 different people groups. I mean, they are there celebrating the day of Pentecost, a Jewish festival. And then in the next chapter two, where Paul preaches and 5,000 are saved, those are 5,000 Jews that are saved. Uh, and they go through chapter after chapter. And if you'd ask them back in that day, uh, who was Jesus? Jesus was the king of the Jews. He was the Messiah for the Jews. He died for his people to save them from their sin. They had a particularly virulent form of limited atonement in that if you want to be saved, yes, there is a way that you can be saved if you want to convert over to Judaism. Uh, you too then. Uh, let's remember even the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8 when we see him get saved. Remember, he is a proselyte. He is coming back from the temple, uh, having worship there. Uh, so they would have been glad to tell you, if you want the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, well, Christ came for his people. So if you will enter in through circumcision, uh, through the Sabbath, through the dietary law, if you will enter in into the household of Israel... Uh, you too then can also enjoy the blessings of salvation in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, no. Uh, they, they, they don't think there is any salvation for you. Uh, you're out of luck. And so for chapter after chapter, by the time we come to chapter 10, it's true, the gospel has now been presented to the Samaritans, and that one really they struggle with. But let's remember the Samaritans do follow the law of Moses. They even have their own copy of the temple. They, they do follow the dietary laws and circumcision and, and uh, keep the Sabbath. So, so that one's tough, but yeah, okay. And by the time we come to Acts chapter 10, and if you remember, Dr. Aiken did such a wonderful job of presenting that chapter here at Convocation. Simon Peter, the Apostle Peter, is at Joppa, and he has that magnificent vision at noontime where the sheet comes down. 
and he sees that it's filled with unclean animals. Think about this. This is the Apostle Peter, and whenever the Apostle Peter sees the sheet come down and he hears the words, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. He says to the Lord, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unclean. This is the Apostle, ten years after Calvary, and he is still living like a dedicated, observant Jew. And so the vision is given to him three times. And he sees all of these unclean animals, and the Lord tells him, eat them. And you know, he said, no, I just can't do this. This is just terrible. And he's trying to figure out what this means. Well, one thing it doesn't mean, it doesn't simply mean that it's okay to eat things that aren't kosher. It isn't that God in heaven looks down and says, you know, one of these days there's going to be a city called New Orleans. And they're going to have some great crawfish etouffee. And they're going to have some shrimp poor boys. And they're going to serve boudin. And I want Peter to be able to enjoy that. That's not the point and the purpose of that magnificent vision. No, you want to see yourself in Acts chapter 10? You are those unclean animals. You are those filthy, unclean things. And so, of course, as you know, at the time that this is going on, Cornelius is receiving the word from the angel telling him to go get Simon Peter. And so Simon Peter is summoned by soldiers sent by the centurion Cornelius. And he goes to his house and Simon Peter knows that he's going to be in trouble for doing this, so he brings an entourage with him. And you have one of he arrives, and he goes into the, to there, and, 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 and Cornelius just falls down before him. You have the whole account there. Simon Peter says one of the most amazing things. Look what he says there in Acts chapter 10 and verse 28. He says, well, I've got it up here on the board. It should be. There it is. He says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. In other words, what he says is, you know that under any other circumstances, I would not darken your door. I would have never come in to... Notice how he says this. You know how unlawful it is for a Jew. Well, it's not un... nothing in the Old Testament. He's just talking about the mindset, the culture the milieu of the, of the Jews of that day. Here is the apostle saying, I would never come to your house. I would never have anything to do with you. And I certainly wouldn't be telling you about Jesus. This is a mind-blowing uh, confession on his part. And notice here, he says, you already know that. Notice how he starts off that. He says, for you yourselves know. In other words, everybody knows we Jews don't like you. And in fact, that's a mind-blowing thing in of itself, where he describes himself in this verse as a Jew. And I almost want to say to Simon Peter at this point, Simon Peter, are you only a Jew? Are you merely a Jew? I mean, I was thinking that you were the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking that you were a minister of the gospel, a New Testament saint. What's going on here? And there's a real lesson here, young people. Here is some, it's possible to be regenerate, to be saved, to be washed in the blood, and still have cultural blinders on, on your eyes that are, that are causing you to not see some very important truths. And so this is a staggering admission on his part. And as he is presenting to them who Jesus was, 
a stunning thing happens. I mean, it's amazing what happens. And that is, they believe what he's saying. And it's demonstrated that he believes what, they're, uh, that what he's saying by the Holy Spirit of God descending upon them and they speak in tongues. Now, no uh, speaking in tongues have occurred ex except back in Acts chapter 2. And it says that not only Peter, but everybody there with him are completely shocked, amazed, blown away. And Simon Peter, he's, you know, he may be dense, but he's not stupid. And at this point, he turns to everybody and he says, you know, we said that they were filthy. We said they were odious. We said they were beneath us. But the Holy Spirit seems to be pleased to dwell in them. I don't think we're more holy than the Holy Spirit, do you fellows? Well, how that can we not baptize them if the Holy Spirit says, welcome into the family? And so he baptizes them. Now, how pivotal, how important, how awesome is this event? I'll tell you how awesome it is. The Bible devotes two whole chapters to it. It isn't just Acts chapter 10. We go then into Acts chapter 11, and it lets us know that Peter is in trouble with the home church. I mean, the elders and the deacons want to talk with him. And so he's called in on the carpet. And they want to know, where have you been? Who are you with? What were you doing? And we have, again, the story recounted, told again. And it says that after he tells the whole story, the vision, the preaching, the descending of the Holy Spirit, it says that they all became silent. In other words, they are shocked, shocked. And then finally, they start, somebody speaks up and says, well, I guess glory to God. What do you know? Even Gentiles can be saved. Do you get the point? First, you got to understand this chapter, Ephesians 2, in the light of that level of animosity, that level of hostility, that level of enmity. And then unless, that's why I am very optimistic that the gospel can overcome the divide of today. You say, why do you think it can overcome it? Uh, all of the problems of today? It's already done it before. It's done it before it can do it again. So we see the hostility. You and I, prior it was a state of hostility. It was a state of hopelessness. Is there a sadder verse in all of the Bible than Ephesians 2.12, which describes the condition of everyone that's unsaved? In verse 12, he said, remember at that time you were separated from Christ. And he talks about how at that time having no hope and without God in the world. Let's remember that the first century, the century in which the gospel arrived, was a century of suicide in the Roman Empire. Not only was it a century of suicide, it was a century of infanticide and abortion. In fact, as far as we can tell, the population of Rome was actually declining. There was a, a nihilistic hopelessness that permeated that age. In fact, here's just a few of the, of the Hellenistic philosophers from times prior. Notice what uh, Sophocles said, he said, the best thing to happen to a man is never to be born. The next, next best thing is to be born and to die immediately. 
Or as Theognis said, and this is he, notice he says, I will try to have a good time while I'm young, for I shall lie under the earth for a long time. It sounds very current, that type of, of, of mindset, does it not? This <clears throat> is the condition for the Gentiles prior to Christ. Enemies, aliens. But folks, that brings up the second point. Jesus makes all the difference. Look at what he says in verse 13. I love how you have this hinge expression, but now. It says in verse 13, but now Jesus is our redemption. Look at verse 13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You and I have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. Not only is he our redemption, he is our peace. Look at verse 14 where he talks about how he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Now that is a not too subtle reference uh, to the Thanatos inscription over uh, the entrance to the temple. The temple, no Gentile was allowed into the temple. In fact, it had an inscription that said, over it, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Now, how would you like to have that sign over the front of your top? Put that on the marquee out of the church on Sunday. Again, remember, there was a rumor that Paul had brought in a Gentile, and a riot ensued there at the end of the book of Acts. And it lets you know just the mindset that the Apostle Paul is preaching against and showing how Christ overcomes this. Christ is our redemption. We've all been saved by the same blood. There is now no uh, hostility, for he is our peace. He is our liberty. Look at verse 15. He says in the first part of verse 15 that by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, he has now overcome all those things. And then in verse 15, he is our unity. Again, there is no longer two, there is one. Look at, again at the second part of verse 15. It says that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. There, and in now so making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's no longer two. There's only one. There's no longer a dividing wall. There's because we all are enjoying the same salvation in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ has made all of the difference. Therefore, he says, he is our peace. Look at our, at our ambassador. Look at verse 17. And I like how Paul says this. It says, and he came and preached peace to you. Paul doesn't say, I came to you and preached the peace of Jesus Christ. That's not what he says. He says, rather, Jesus came to you and preached peace. In other words, he said, when you heard the gospel, that was the spirit of Jesus talking to you said, he came, for, the, for you that were afar off, he came and preached peace to you. And for we Jews who were near, he came to us and he preached peace to us. Right now, 
The person with whom you have the greatest sense of hostility. The person that you have the greatest sense of, of a grudge. That you, that you really are holding something against them because they have, <clears throat> in your mind, treated you wrongly. What if Jesus were to sit down right now next to you and softly speak to you and say, I want you to make peace with him. I want you to be reconciled with that one. That's exactly the imagery Paul is using here. Jesus himself has been the ambassador of peace. He's come to one people group, to one race, to one color, to one skin. And he says, I want you to be reconciled with these over here. And then he's gone over to those over here. And he says, I want you to be reconciled. I want the two of you. And, <clears throat> and so you and I, Jesus standing in front of us, and he says, I want you to be reconciled. Will you do that for me? He comes and preaches peace. And as a result, because Christ is our common redemption, our common peace, you and I all have a common access. Verse 18. In verse 18 he says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The imagery here is, is Jew and Gentile taking hand, joining hands. Let's march to the throne of grace together. Let's walk in the Spirit together. Let's worship the Father together. And so Paul says, Jesus has made all the difference and what has resulted is a whole new humanity. Notice what he says. There's a new citizenship now. In verse 19, he says, For you are fellow citizens. And there's a whole new family now. We are members of the household of God. And there's a whole new purpose now. We've been given a mission. And that mission is expressed in what he's doing in verses 20 through 22. The foundation that's been built on the apostles and prophets. There is a magnificent temple being built. God is at work. Well, I've read a couple of books uh, in the last couple of months that really seemed to drive Ephesians 2 home to me. The greatest war that has ever fought over racial matters, the great race war of human history, is of course World War II. There was a particularly vicious type of social Darwinism advocated in the Western world, and we see its expression in the attitude that the Japanese had towards the other cultures and that the Germans had towards everyone else. And uh, a couple of books that have really brought this home, one of them that you're familiar with is uh, the book Unbroken. Um, and Unbroken, uh, they, of course they've made a movie about it this fall. I haven't seen the movie. I don't know if I want to see the movie. Uh, if it shows anything realistic to what uh, the the, 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 the leading person, Louis Camperini, went through. Louis Camperini was this amazing man. He was in the Olympics of 1936. He, along with the rest of his crew, uh, crashed in, in the Pacific Ocean during World War II. They spent over 40 days lost at sea. Uh, of the 11 crew members, uh, only three survived the crash. One dies during that 40-some-odd-day period. And then they are captured by the Japanese. And then 
his real ordeal begins. And it tells in graphic detail the horrors uh, that he endured at the hands of his Japanese captors. And so at the end of World War II, after it's over, even though the book is called Unbroken, he is a broken man. He is an alcoholic. He is, he is consumed with anger and bitterness and hatred. And it's destroying him, uh, his family, his marriage. And in 1947, his wife convinces him to go to a Billy Graham crusade, and he is gloriously saved. And God delivers him from the bitterness and hatred that he held towards his Japanese captors to the point that he returns to Japan. And there, I don't know what's going on here with this, but um, this is obviously a trick. We need to give this back to Garth Brooks or something. Um, uh, he goes back to Japan, and as he goes back to Japan, he meets with the Japanese uh, guards that are now prisoners themselves, serving time for their crimes, and everyone that would let him, he visits them and he forgives them, and they're just blown away by the love and forgiveness that he shows, and he tells them it's because he has experienced the love of Christ. I mean, if there's ever a, a person who exemplified what Ephesians chapter 2 is trying to get at, it was Louis uh, Zamperini in his love for his former captors. Well, I read another book over Christmas, and I'll just be honest with you, that one challenged me much more because it told the story of uh, Henry Garricky. Henry Garricky was a chaplain in World War II, uh, and he'd already been away from his family for two years when the Second World War ended, and he was looking forward to going home. Uh, he was from southern Missouri. He was, he was in his 50s. That's why I, 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 I related so much to, to the story, because he was talking about him. Mean, he was born just a few miles from where I grew up. And uh, as it tells the story, they, the army asked him to stay for another year and a half to two years. And they wanted him, because he could speak German, to be the chaplain to the Nazi war criminals, the 22 that were on trial at Nuremberg. And that book really was difficult because Garricky faces faces the question, listen to me, this is a tough question. How do you sincerely present the gospel to those that you want to go to hell? Each of these men, the 22 men that are on trial, it goes through in detail and says and, and tells what the reason why they were on trial. And it tells the evidence that was that was presented about each one of those men. Sixty million people died via genocide in the, in, in the 20th century. In just one of those men, one of those men was, was, was guilty of 2% of, of all of those deaths. And it isn't just that these 22 men murdered millions it's the way they did it. They didn't just kill them, but millions and millions, they starved them to death. They worked them to death. 
They froze them to death. And they lived within earshot of their victims, and they lived like nobility and royalty, while the others that were under their charge, they showed a callous cruelty, a casual uh, brutality that is just, it, 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 uh, you just, you just can't hardly get your head around these monsters. And now, Christ has called Henry Garricky to preach the gospel to them. And he talked about what it was like. I mean, some of the men wanted the trappings and the crudiments of religion, and no, we're not doing that. And it goes through the whole thing about how he preached, how he shared Christ, how he demonstrated the love of Christ. He loved the unlovable. In fact, about six months into the trial, a rumor went around the soldiers, or the, the prisoners, saying that Garricky's wife had said, come home. Remember, he didn't have to stay. He could come home. And you got to remember, back then, travel was difficult. So he hadn't seen his wife in almost three years at that time. And so they, the Nuremberg prisoners, wrote a letter to his wife. And I want to read just an excerpt of that letter and from it I want you and I to try to derive what kind of gospel witness was Henry Garricky to these men bring it up it says Frau Garricky your husband Pastor Garricky has been taking religious care of the undersigned defendants during the Nuremberg trial incidentally all 22 of them signed it he has been doing so for more than half a year. We now have heard, dear Mrs. Garricky, that you wish to see him back home after his absence of several years. Because we also have wives and children, we understand this wish of yours very well. Nevertheless, we are asking you to put off your wish to gather your family around you at home for a little while. Please consider that we cannot miss your husband now. During the past months, he has shown us uncompromising friendliness of such a kind that he has become indispensable for us. Our dear Chaplain Garricky is necessary for us not only as a minister, but also as the thoroughly good man that he is. Surely, we need not to describe him as such to his own wife. Look at the next sentence. We simply have come to love him. It is impossible for any other man than him to break through the walls that have been built up around us in a spiritual sense even stronger than in a material one. Please leave him with us. Certainly you will bring this sacrifice and we shall be deeply indebted to you. We send our best wishes to you and your family. God be with you. These men challenge our understanding of, of Romans 5.20. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you that you and I, despite all of the enmity and hostility that we see in our culture today, 
You and I can be optimist. We can be hopeful because Christ overcomes all barriers. As Garricky, as it's recounted in the story, probably about four of the 22 truly did come to a true saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you and I, we are to live the verse that Jesus has taught. Bring it up the next screen there, fellas, if you will. As where it says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people, the whole world, will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. Thank you, Lord, for the love of Christ, the work that he has accomplished and is accomplishing through his spirit in our hearts and minds. We are able to face whatever the obstacles are because we know that all the walls have already been broken down by Christ. And so we rejoice that the reconciliation has been effected between you and us. And therefore, there is no reason for any uh, disruption in the fellowship between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do this work, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. And amen. And amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.